0: Hello and welcome to EvaluLand. This is the show where we interview people about any and all things evaluation related. I am your host, Dana Jane Linnell, recording on the ancestral lands of the Anishinaabe people in Menominee, Wisconsin. Dr. Tatiana Elisa Bustos applies community-based participatory research approaches in her work. Tatiana is someone I met through Twitter, and I'm very fortunate to get to learn more about her work through our episode today. So Tatiana, welcome to the podcast. If you want to take a few moments uh, to introduce yourself for our listeners, I'm particularly interested in how you got into evaluation. I love hearing that journey into the field, how people, you know, most people get into it accidentally, but love to hear how people find out about it and get into this work.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, uh, Dana, for having me here. Um, So I am Tatiana Lisa Bustos. I am a social research scientist. Um, I consider myself a social justice researcher. I'm trained in community-based participatory research. Um, and I'm also a mentor. I love working with high school students to build their relate, uh, research skills um, through Polygins. And my journey into evaluation was also accidental. So I was doing my PhD in Michigan uh, through Michigan State University. And I was getting trained in community psychology, which is, which I'll ex- probably get into it a little bit more later, but it's basically a research ap- approach to engaging with community members throughout the process. And when I was engaging with community members in a specific project, I started hearing a lot about how they, and this was with nonprofits in particular, how they really needed an evaluation. They kept saying the word evaluation, evaluation. And I started seeing the use of those types of approaches. So bringing that to my work when I was doing community engaged research with people. And so I ended up getting courses in program evaluation through Michigan State. They have a Program Evaluation Center and just started getting into the network and connections with people, and it just fit perfectly with what I was trying to do to help um, community members and organizations. That was my journey.
0: Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. I'm curious. You you mentioned that you mentor high school students in research. Yeah. What does that look like for you? Because I'm, I'm always curious how people train people in, in, in doing these skills, especially when, I don't know, I never learned any of these skills in, in, in high school. Uh, So I'm curious what that looks like.
1: Yeah. uh, I came across this awesome opportunity. It's an organization called Polygence. Um, I had a friend who was doing it and he was mentoring high school students himself and he did a referral and I ended up getting involved. and, And so they actually connect researchers, PhDs, or, um, PhD students or other to mentor high school students. And so th- they'll do the matching for you. So the students actually have to apply, but what the process looks like is that eventually you get matched um, with someone who has similar interests or goals as you and wants to learn from your specialty and it's virtual. So we use the platform to communicate with one another and they, when they do apply, they actually have to submit like a video And it's super adorable. I love it so much because, you know, they're so passionate about a big idea and your job as a mentor is to scope it and shape it in a way that's feasible within the six months that you do have with them. Um, And so it's a lot of what's your idea? Okay, let's start with what tools you have to search about those ideas. So even starting with like literature, literature searches, websites, really basic details that No high school student knows, and I didn't know that either, but I get the opportunity to tell someone at an early point so that when they do get to college, they have those skills and it's applicable outside of research too, you know, to to research a topic and things like that. So I've done projects where someone was, excuse me, someone was really interested in policymakers and the relationship with researchers and wanted to learn more about that very broad idea. And so I was like, well, let's do a technical report that summarizes the literature on that and just gave her some skill sets on how to search systematically, how to like assess the quality of articles. And then so another student was interested in mental health blogs. And then I had to scope like, what kind of issues are you interested in? Um, how do you identify the key topics in a blog and things like that? So it's been really fun. And that's kind of what it looks like. Um, not a you know a very large research project but it's still those basic research skills that they need to be successful in the future and it's it's my favorite thing so I've been doing that on on the side I really love it it's one of my favorite passions is to mentor them
0: yeah Yeah. that sounds like such a rewarding endeavor to be involved with and personally rewarding for students who have you know get to explore topics of interest to them in a way that I feel like when I was in K-12 and really interested in projects, it was just a figure it out on my own type thing of like, oh, yeah. I'd love to do this and figure it out. And, uh, you know, I learned a lot from that process, but it's nice to have a mentor like you to, to help facilitate that a little bit easier. So that, oh, that sounds wonderful.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I love it.
0: And so uh, you've been in community psychology. Is that where, and, and so the topic of today is to talk about community-based participatory research. And so is, is it through your community psychology work that you learned about this approach or is it something more in the evaluation stuff?
1: So it's through my community psychology training that I started learning about that work. Yes. yeah.
0: Awesome. Yeah. So what, how would you describe community-based participatory research and um, particularly interested in kind of how you think of that in relation to evaluation since, since you've been pretty heavily involved in both in, in, in your graduate training?
1: Yeah. Um, and I love that I get to answer this question because I just, I, CBPR is so close to my heart and something that I just, I do no matter what. Um, and I would describe it as it's like a walk, you know, it's an approach that you're bringing to your research, to your evaluation. Um, it was it was a response to social justice. So it started with um, the field of community psychology. Um, the develop its development was a response to social inequities. And so what what the truth is that some folks came together, psychologists came together who were doing clinical work and said, this isn't working we're not reaching the people we want to reach. And so they created this whole society um, that really gets at community research and action. And that's kind of where CBPR started um, getting built out. And so it's a it's an approach that's value oriented. It has like these nine core principles. And I wrote them down so I don't forget what they are. But um, and I'll read them quickly, but it's it's a long-term commitment to sustainability. So not just thinking about one and done and the end of it, but thinking about the sustainable, what can we continue to sustain, whether it's relationships or program impacts or something else. Um, it's attention to transparency and dissemination, the way that you are sharing out resources with the people that you're working with, the people that are impacted by the program, your team, kind of thinking about dissemination in that process. Um, Iterative feedback. So being participatory in how people are thinking about things, are there changes that we need to make based on specific people's feedback about the research or evaluation design, interpretations, just thinking about that feedback loop. Um, There's a focus on context and ecological perspective. So really thinking about the, the levels that surround a social issue, not just one factor, maybe um, factors are embedded within other factors. So thinking about the multi-level components of social issues, there's mutual benefits. So this it's really tied to that relationship. So there's an attention to mutual benefits, not just for the evaluator, but also for the person that you're directly working with as a partner or the people that you're impacting, co-learning and capacity building, Um, really this attempt to build on community strengths and resources. So what does the community already have in place that you can leverage into the research or evaluation design? Thinking like that as a, for the CBPR approach. Viewing communities not just as one single identity, but as multiple units of identity is a, one of the core principles. And then the last one is, which is, I think is the most important one, is this idea of empowerment and power sharing. So it's really trying to think I mean, it's really trying to embed a decision making process that ensures power isn't just held by the researcher evaluator, but it's overturned. You know, you're kind of flipping the script there and offering a space for your community partners to engage in that process with you and, you know, building up their skill sets to make those decisions as well. So those are kind of the the core principles. You don't have to do all of them because it's actually impossible to do all of them in practice, but those are... What you strive towards as a community psychologist and someone who practices um, CBPR and yeah, so I'll just stop there because I was I feel like I've been talking to a long time, but that's that's kind of the how I would describe it. Very
0: cool. It, it's interesting. What comes up for me is that uh, it reminds me of research practice partnerships.
1: Yes, and exactly.
0: Yeah, and it, one of the things that I argued in my dissertation that I, I think research practice partnerships is just evaluation work, right? Um, but and and i get this sense from the way you describe community based participatory research too that um, i i don't think the way research practice partnerships is formally described goes to the level of empowerment and yeah. um it, the power is more in the, the the participants of the community of whatever the part, the, the practitioners are um, as compared to a research practice partnership. Cause I, I think it's right. a mutual beneficial, but the researchers still have their own agenda. Whereas I don't know, like I, my perception is like, we come in as evaluators and our, our goal is just help you help yourself, right? Like provide you some tools and resources and support for you to do your own work. Right. 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 Um, but research practice partnerships, just slightly different. So I don't know any thoughts on that.
1: Yeah. I think it's the combination of those two. And, and I'm so glad you, that your thought went t- directly to research um, community partnerships because that was my dissertation too. And, you know, just because that was the the most practical way to demonstrate a CBPR approach. But anyway, um, to answer your question, I'm in both spaces. So I'm trained in CBPR, but I'm also an eva- like a professional evaluator in where I work. And I am always combining the two yeah. um, in different ways. Um, going back to like, who holds the power in a research community partnership so being a cbpr by training and practice and then being an evaluator professionally um, i do find those differences um, going back to the research community partnership that you're describing and having that a separate agenda i wouldn't say like a, you know a, a negative agenda or a different one but maybe it's just different than what you would in an evaluation design and so I like the evaluation space and pulling in concepts from CBPR into that space because you have more flexibility Um, because you're mentioning like a lot of evaluators have that like-minded approach to wanting to help the communities um, help themselves. And that's sometimes, I mean, maybe not everyone, but it's sometimes harder um, to get that in a research context because there are these deadlines for grants or expectations for grants although there's you might find the same situation in evaluation but it's a little bit different there's some flexibility but I think I run into the same challenges across both yeah you know so but I think that's that's the difference having having the space to do that to take time to think about sustainability or to think about disseminating products. Whereas in a research setting, that might be like, oh, no way. I don't, that's introduces bias and all these other issues. So that's depending on who you're talking to, but that's, that's what I would think about the the key differences um, between
0: the two. Speaking of grants, like who is typically funding this type of work? Is it the community themselves? Um, And, and even then what, who is the community? Is it like a city government? Is it um, a nonprofit organization? What does this typically look like?
1: Yeah, so I think community is could be anyone. So when I say community, I'm thinking about staff, government, um, actual nonprofit leaders, it could be um, researchers, uh, maybe, um, well, maybe not the researchers, but the researchers who are engaged with someone in some way that are standing in the middle, um, like intermediaries. So, but there are a lot of grants right now who are actually supporting this type of work. Um, The grant that I was on that was specifically focused on health disparities and using CBPR to build out interventions um, for those health disparities in substance use and um, obesity prevention was actually the NIMH. Mm -hmm. Um, And there is a lot of work happening right now um, in the research setting, particularly, which is kind of more innovative now nowadays, um, is there are a lot of um, NIMH, NIH um, grants coming out right now that I have that require a community, um, like a community consultation process, or some kind of intervening with communities, so that the work can be informed as such. Nice. And then in evaluation, you get more creative RFPs, like, yeah. you, know, you you know, you can be creative with um, what you submit, as long as you frame it in a way that works. So I, I don't, I think you probably know what's out there for for the RFPs, but I've also seen seen that work there. So, yeah, that's yeah. that's where it's um, building out. Yeah. So when, how how would these start?
0: So it sounds like sometimes it, it's starting from the researcher evaluator if they're getting like an NIMH or NIH grant, um, but then they need to consult with with the community, like. How, how do you engage with the community to start that work? Or is it more of a, they've, they've approached you and then you're approaching these federal grants um, and applying for them?
1: That's a good question. Like, is it grant, is it a trigger from a grant or from the communities themselves? Um, that's what I'm hearing. So it starts, it could start either way. It probably starts from the grant first is what I've seen in the literature. Like that's how these partnerships typically start first. And I forgot to mention the CDC is also a huge one, Mm. um, especially in public health settings that is pushing for these ideas with um, community advisory groups. But the way that it would start is I would, you know, get the CDC grant, for example. Um, I would have to submit an evaluation plan after I received the grant if the grant, I'm thinking in particular a grant that actually required a community component, like these are explicitly stated in the grants. Um, And so what I, what I do is I present the idea of a community advisory group council into the plan. Um, And the only, the only thing that can vary is sometimes people have a partnership and sometimes they don't. So, but a relationship I mean, with the community members that they're trying to invite into the research process. Like an existing relationship already? Yes, exactly. Existing relationship. Um, I'm thinking of a situation where I was new to the state you know, I didn't have any existing relationships, but the agency did. Um, So I was trying to leverage some of the partnerships that they already had to invite people to a community advisory group. So you can do things like that where you may not, even if you are the evaluator on that grant and you don't have those relationships, you can still work with someone else to um, try to, not partner, but recruit people to participate as part of the the evaluation project. So it starts like that, um, writing out the plan, um, being really specific about how these people are going to be involved, like how are you going to involve community members? Like, so there is like a thoughtful process. Um, you create like a, uh, the name escapes me right now, but you outline the the expectations, the timeline, um, the, the deliverables that would be expected. It's kind of like a memorandum of understanding, yeah. but it's really for a community partnership. um that's going to be involved so there is like it is extra work um it's like doing two projects in one because you have to be thoughtful about how um many times um you're you're going to be inviting communities to participate um if there are incentives or not what kind um, what happens if they just don't want to participate having those measures in place so this all happens after you get the grant and after you're an evaluation or during you, during your writing of the evaluation plan. So you, you have those materials. Um, and yeah. And so that's the start. That's the very beginning. And then you actually have to recruit with the, the roles that you've created, the agreements that you've created. Right. Um, hopefully you got advice from someone who is a community engagement specialist of the agency to, you know, make judgments, uh, best judgments on whether those number of meetings are, Okay, the incentives are okay and things like that, um, so really thinking about feedback feedback process to make sure that the materials are meaningful um, before we get out to the community, so there's just a lot of like pre work to. Um, to a research project like that or an
0: evaluation project like that. Yeah. It's interesting that that multi-step grant process of, it's not until you get the grant that you're now articulating that agreement um, yeah. between the organization. I can see the the pros and cons of that, right? That For sure. uh, one benefit is like, you're not engaging with the community until you know that you can actually do this work. Cause that would just suck, right? You say, hey, we're yeah. gonna do this great work and sorry, we, got, we didn't get funded. Um, but at the other flip end, um, I can imagine it'd be, more helpful to get funding. If you could say, we already have these agreements in place. We've already, you know, have built, uh, relationships with these community partners who have expressed this need, who could write like a letter of support, for example, as part of the grant process to say, look, if you fund us, we're already demonstrating that the community, uh, yeah. engagement is going to be there. Right.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. And that would be I, I agree with you that the the second approach would be more appropriate, but you do end up finding people who maybe have never done this type of work and are attempting to make that type of work. So there is an opportunity there to change that space, too. So I see the pros and cons a, about it as well. I have seen people you know, write grants with the community partners that are going to be part Mm. of the process. So that can look differently too, and and align with what you're describing. But yeah, it's, I've seen more, more, more often the, the alternative where Mm. we're kind of just creating it afterwards.
0: What does the engagement of community in this process look like? So um, how are you involving them in the, it sounds like advisory boards type approach, but um, what does that look like? And is it, does it get more engaged than that? So for example, of um, them collecting data, the community, um, you know, data dashboarding type thing right. and data placemats type thing to help analyze and interpret the data. What does that, I guess it could, it varies, but in your practice, yeah. what does this look like?
1: Yeah, so I've seen, I'll give two examples because I've seen it in different ways and it'll always vary. Like yeah. you're just thinking about those, you can't do all nine core principles. You know, you can do some and- you, and still maintain that uh, throughout the project, so it is challenging in practice. But one example is the community advisory group, um, and there, you know, timing is everything. You, if you're being, if you're holding yourself accountable to that relationship building and to that equitable power sharing process, you're engaging early. You know, you're you're writing up something. But not the whole thing you know you you, it's always a good partnership, if you can put a draft together and then bring that draft to work through it with your partner and so that's how I that's how I approach it so i've created. um, A very loose draft of the evaluation plan questions and just going through phases, not just writing the whole plan. But looking at the research questions, and then taking a pause and going to my community advisory group, asking them what they think: Are we it, are we hitting the right questions? Is this the is this meeting the mark? Are we being responsive to what you're seeing out in the community? Mm-hmm. And so, and it and I know I recognize that it slows it down completely, but sometimes that's necessary um, for for impact. You know, I think it's oh, yeah. necessary for impact and social justice yeah. work. Um. And so that would be the first phase. So just taking the evaluation plan by phases. But I I'm mindful about bringing work forward because you know going back to that power sharing idea, like you know I don't want to burden my community advisory groups um, with starting and drafting the work from the very beginning unless they tell me that they want to be involved in that way. And so I'll bring work forward um, that we can work through together um, and start there with the questions. The purposes of the evaluations are usually harder because that's set for, by the grant oftentimes, but you know, we'll have a discussion about what direction we might take it to, if there's flexibility. So it's a lot of meetings. So just taking it one step at a time. Um, so that's, that, and that's just the very beginning. <laughs> that's just like the actual design phase. And so once I do collect data, um, I'll probably do like a multi, like question one collected in year one and things like that. I would bring year one, or subset of data from year one to the community advisory group and do like a, how you were describing a data walk process where, you know, I'm not making interpretations. I'm actually just showing it and hearing reactions from what people might see, um, what direction we might want to take. Thankfully, I've been in a lot of flexible projects where I can actually take a deeper dive um, like if they say, well, that's an interesting pattern. Can we take a look at what's going on there? I can. I've yeah. had the freedom to do that. So using those those uh, meetings to to do that as well, not just react to the data, but maybe direct us our next steps together. And then even the report writing phase where, you know, I, of course, draft something um, very brief, not relying on 30 page reports, but like an infographic or. Um, the abbreviated version of the technical report and having them give feedback there. So really thinking about the timing um, of the products throughout the evaluation process. Then I've seen other beautiful, uh, much more engaged processes. I'm thinking of um, the Flint Women's Study where um, they actually invited community members to code the data with them. So it started with a CBPR approach, similar to how I was describing earlier. But um, the data analysis piece of the project, they actually trained community members wow. on how to code and how to use the software um, and did the whole consensus process with them. And so they were actually part of the coding process and the interpretation. And it's just, you know, I've, so I've seen it in different ways. If you get that opportunity to do that, you can. Um, but and that's supposed to, you know, create more re- um, relevant context to the right. findings you know if you think about inviting a community member to interpret your data after you've trained them they're going to see something you don't see you know so and it's going to be because of their lived experiences with the whole concept that you're studying mm-hmm. so it's just i've seen it in, in lots of different ways but that that's how i that's how it looks like in my work very cool yeah um
0: how many people are typically on these advisory committees that um perhaps you're working with but i i I feel like I've read some evaluations where they're bringing in dozens of people um, that feels a little unwieldy. So I'm curious, like what does this typically look like?
1: Yeah. So I've seen different ones. Um, I I agree more than a dozen is unwieldy. Um, I've had up to 18 in one. That's the most that Mm -hmm. I've ever done. Um, I've had some as small as eight. So thinking about a community advisory group just for like to shape a focus group session. So it really all depends on how much funding you have. Um, Maybe the scope of the work, like does it make sense to include that many different perspectives? You know, So you really have to think about who's at the table. What do they represent at that table? And is it helping the topic that you're studying? But then I've also seen other projects that have like, subsets of community advisory groups within the same project and those are i i always find it interesting because that's really hard to manage so they'll have like a subset of a community advisory group for the evaluation piece and then another for the implementation piece and then they'll come together at some point to discuss the work that they're um doing so i've seen that too but that's that seems a little bit difficult to do and maintain i imagine it would require a big team right so yeah thinking of one person, I think the up to 18 is probably a more practical approach. Yeah, that makes sense.
0: What haven't we covered about CBPR that you think would be helpful for folks wanting to learn more about it?
1: For folks wanting to learn more about it, I think it's important to think about what the work means. So, you know, CBPR is like a it's like a, it's like health equity. It's a bingo word right now. You know, everyone mm-hmm. wants to do it. It's coming up everywhere. Um, there's a lot of people just doing it without getting the proper training. Um, and for me, you know, it's something that's really personal and it 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 does represent something more meaningful. So I think, I feel like others should be aware of that. Like it's, it is an approach that has values that is grounded on social justice that like, is trying to change inequities in a meaningful way, and it's important to think about the what that means when you're trying to do it. So, being reflexive and um, about your positionality when you're doing the work is important. If you're not doing that when you're doing CBPR, I don't know what you're doing. You yeah. know, so so it's really thinking about. Um, Knowing when to step down as a researcher or evaluator, Mm. which I think is really hard for some people, um, having that cultural humility to just shut up and listen. You know, I've had people who are just totally displeased, people, I mean, community advisory groups who are totally displeased with what I'm saying um, with my research questions. And they're like, we need to start from the very beginning. And I'm like, you're right. Let's tell me how, you tell me how, Um, and taking a seat back and that's important, you know, knowing that that's a central tenant of the work is very important. Um, And so I just, I would, you know, I would want people to be mindful of of that, that it's not just about inviting people using their feedback, but there's a lot of me work happening along the way, because it is hard, like even if I've been doing it for some years, like I always learn something new, um, when when I'm trying to apply it um, with my community advisory group members or other. So that's, that's another thing that I would want to share.
0: Yeah, I love the the focus on ref- reflexivity. So I'm, I'm curious, what does reflective practice look like for for you and your work?
1: Yeah, so I do a lot of reflect reflections. Um, my positionality, like my identity, changes a lot where I am. You know, so I'm currently a government employee, and wearing that hat and working with community advisors can be completely different than what I know as a community engaged researcher or like someone who is a community representative of the groups that are, that are impacted by social inequities and just taking the time to think about what that means um like you know I'll, I'll, maybe I had a bad meeting and or a negative response about something um and I need to take a time to- take the time to think about why that's happening so really taking, I don't know, I would say 30 minutes after a meeting to debrief, think about what our roles were playing in that meeting. Did I give enough power up? You know, did, did I allow enough space um, for participation? Um, it's also journaling. So I love writing about um, my experiences and they call it bracketing, where you're trying to set your um, personal assumptions and biases about what's happened out. And then you take a look again and read it through it. So it's just a lot of this introspective work, um, and sometimes I even set up a meeting with others and talk about that, like what were what were we doing, like what did it look like, um, was there something we could have been doing differently, and tr- thinking about our positionalities in that meeting, or in those sessions with others, so that's kind of how it looks like for me, it's really important for me um, in particular, and I try to show my students that as well, you know, like it, this isn't just about doing the research, but thinking about who you are in that um, that process as well.
0: I don't think I have any other questions. Is there anything else that we haven't covered that would be
1: important to share? I I don't think so. Um, I think that's all. That's all I wanted to share. I know I have um, some resources yeah. for people who want to get training. Um, so take a look at that. And yeah, I think I think that's it. Please reach out um, if you have other questions about CDPR. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Be, uh, be sure to check out the
0: show notes for uh, a bunch of resources that Tatiana has shared, um, professional organizations related to CBPR, training institutes, a toolkit or a, a collection of toolkits, and a few journals to check out as well. Uh, so, in wrapping up, uh, one thing I love to end the show with is something that Code Switch used to do. They haven't been doing it in a while, which makes me a little sad. But they used to ask, "What song is giving you life right now?" And I always like to flip it a little bit. And what in evaluation or in CVPR is giving you life right now?
1: Yeah, I love Code Switch. That's one of Thank my favorite podcasts. <laughs> so too. good. Um, so I, I um, have a lot of. I was actually excited about this podcast and meeting you, Dana. So this is kind of my one of my high ends for 2023. Um, I have a lot of writing projects coming up. So just thinking professionally, um, and I have a book chapter coming out. And you probably know about the West um, Western Michigan Evaluation Center. Um, I get to release a book actually about CBPR and how oh, to embed that into evaluation. Oh, congratulations! So I'm excited. Yeah, yeah, I'm really excited about that. Um, I also uh, have been selected to be the program coordinator for the research and evaluation webinar <gasps> series. Yes. So oh, really thank sick. you. I am so glad that
0: you applied for that. That was something that, uh, me and Kathleen Dahl and Michael Harner, um, and, uh, Gregory Greenman, all of us, uh, applied for the funding when we were leaders. And then, you know, the current leadership has taken that mantle. I'm so glad you took up that. We are so excited to have that webinar series and we're going to be so great at helping, helping facilitate that process.
1: Yeah, I'm super stoked about that. Um, and I get to connect with awesome leadership chairs yeah. um, for the ROE. So I'm really looking forward to that. And I, personally, I think we're going to take some trips on national hikes on the West Coast. So I, yeah, I'm i excited for that, too. So um, yeah, so that's that's what I have happening. And what ge- what's giving me life and evaluation is really those opportunities to build out uh, those connections um, with other evaluators but also just sharing out cvpr like i feel like years back it was a little bit challenging to do that Mm -hmm. and now it's just more invited so i i'm I'm really excited to to have those spaces
0: yeah i'm so glad that we could learn more from you about cvpr and oh my gosh your 2023 sounds incredibly exciting
1: yeah yeah thank
0: you thank you for having me thank you so much for reaching out and i'm just so glad that we're we're following each other on twitter and i appreciate it thank you so much I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please visit the podcast website at evalueland.fireside.fm, where you can subscribe to get notified of new episodes and contact us with your questions, comments, or suggestions. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, this has been Evaluland.